Rethinking healthcare takes more than disruption. It takes more than thought leaders. It takes change makers and doers. That's who we'll be speaking to on the Healthcare Rethink podcast, giving you, our dedicated listeners, a rich body of insights to make your own change. This is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. Welcome to the Healthcare Rethink. I'm your host, Brian Urban, and I am extremely excited to have, I'll say, my mentor, a long-term friend and leader in the broader space of health, John Lovelace. Today, we're going to be discussing health as a journey, not just a finish line. So here we go. John, thanks for being first guest on this podcast. A pleasure to be with you. So we've known each other for quite a while. And to all of our listeners out there, wanting to get them to know you a little bit more as well. Uh, I thought we'd start with kind of a, a fun fact here. If you Google John Lovelace, if you Google him and you find the right guy, the first thing that you're going to notice is a bow tie. Many, many bow ties. I think it's a marker or identifier of who you are. And I've always thought it's it's really interesting. Aside from all the amazing things you've done, uh, tell me about the bow tie. Why has it been with you for such a long time? You know, honestly, I've, I've never Googled myself. <laughs> I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I get my, uh, it's a familiar thing, I suppose. My grandfather wore bow ties. My father wore bow ties. Sometimes I've always worn them a little bit. I, when I last probably 20 years or so, I just gave up on long ties. So you, you don't just spill soup on your bow tie. It's very hard to do, actually. <laughs> I love it. I, uh, I wanted to know a little bit about that personally, too. So uh, that was a bit of a bonus for me. But, um, well, John, uh, you are the president uh, for UPMC for you, uh, the Medicaid and the Medicare arm, and you've you've been there for a while. So how long have you been, not only in your position, but in the culture and in the being of, of UPMC, the health plan? I've been at UPMC since 1996. So this is 26 years, I think, I had my 25th anniversary last year. UPMC for you is one of the many arms of licensed arms of UPMC health plan. It's a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. It actually, we don't do Medicare except for SNP. So we have a Medicaid product um, called Health Choices. We have a MLTSS product called Community Health Choices, which are both state contracts. And we have a dual eligible SNP plan for Medicare Advantage. Um, so the three lines of business in, in UPMC for you. It's one of the nine licensed insurance companies that are part of UPMC. Wow. So uh, I, that that gives, I think, our, our audience a good depiction of where you sit and where you land and, and what you've been doing for such a long time. So I think at this point in your life, you're really a native Pittsburgher, I would say, but that's not necessarily where your academic career and some of your early parts of your career started. So what what took you from uh, New York, Buffalo, into, into Pittsburgh and, and with UPMC? The, the short answer, well, of course, if you're if you're from Pittsburgh, you're never a native unless you were born here. So I, I, I will never be a native, but I have been here for 50 years, so it seems like pretty native enough. I came from Buffalo um, because my wife got a job offer at Pitt, actually, and it was a she had finished her PhD at the University of Buffalo, and it was a good job offer, and we had a baby, so it didn't really matter to the baby where we lived, and it seemed a good time to move. I, I was. 
I went to college near near Pittsburgh in Washington, PA, which is not too far, about an hour, half hour south of here. So I knew something of the of the culture. It's it's not very far. It's about 200 miles to Buffalo, so it's not a not a stretch to get here. And it's a, a very familiar climate. So I would, then I worked in mental health. Actually, the first half of my career was all in public mental health. So I'd been in um, I'd been running a mental health center out of Buffalo, and I had a job in a mental health center in Pittsburgh. So we commuted for nine months from January of 1980 till August. Um, first, she came in January and had a room, and I had the house and a baby till May, and then we sold the house. And the, the rule was whoever had the whoever had the house had the baby. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good rule. <laughs> so when, when we sold the house, I, I moved in with a friend, and the baby came south with her mother. And, and then I, in August, I started my new started my new job in September, actually, right after Labor Day. Wow. So that's the journey that's taken you here, and 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 here you've been over fifty years. So it's definitely had an impact on on who you are, and definitely the region for what you do. Uh, yeah, well, very cool. So uh, I I wanted to really get into the social impact center, and I, I think a lot of crossroads now for the culture of the region uh, are really being highlighted in terms of. Uh, how people need to be helped and how we need to work together. So I, I really admire the Social Impact Center. So I, I wanted to get deeper into that. So can you help define what that is and, and what you're doing right now? Sure, the, the short story of this is we founded the um, Center for Social Impact in December of 2020. So before the before the pandemic, 19. So it's two and a half years old. The, it was really an effort, initially an effort to sort of pull together our collective thoughts about how we impact social factors that affect health. Um, UPMC is a fairly big charitable arm of money we fund with nonprofits. We do tax credit investing. We have business arrangements with nonprofits. And we thought it'd be useful to try to organize this into a more um, coherent framework around what we're doing, rather than a lot of one-offs. The... It's high to that is, you know, you've probably heard this before from other people, but there are various versions of this story. But basically, it is that 80% of the outcomes of healthcare are not related to the healthcare you get. It's related to everything else your lifestyle, your lifestyle choices, your genetics, your environment, um, the, the, the decisions you make. The, it's not, it's not, the, not the healthcare itself. So, as we think about how to influence healthcare, and certainly healthcare is you can't be healthy without it, probably. But the opportunity to think about how do how do you impact how does housing impact healthcare? How does food security impact healthcare? How does how does having enough money to live? How does poverty impact healthcare? Those are much bigger questions that if you don't think about them in, in an organized way, you are just sort of spending money on healthcare without really getting much of an, as much of an outcome as you could be getting. So for us, it's a matter of trying to rethink how we broaden our scope with understanding we can't solve the problems of the world. We can't house everybody needs to be housed, but you know, we have limitations on how much money we have and how we can spend it. But we can really develop some skills, I think, at intersecting with other other sources of funding, rating, rating opportunities to create a more robust sort of synergistic sense where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that's mm-hmm. really our approach to social investing. So we've, we've had a really nice it was, it was two people when it started, the Center of Social Impact. And I, it was, we had a team meeting this morning. There were, I think, 12 people on the call who are either directly or, in, or indirectly affiliated with the center. And we've done just some, I think, remarkable work in two and a half years. That's amazing to hear the growth, too, internally. So when you talk about the, the, the sum 
and 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 all the parts that you're pulling together in terms of maybe community players, uh, community-based organizations, and other strategic partnerships. Has that been core to the development that you've seen over the last two years? I think it is core. There, there are many things we can't we we can't we're not well positioned to do many things, like interact with people in their homes. You know, we we have we have many health workers, we have outreach workers, the we have a large you know Medicaid is a big program in Pennsylvania as it is a place it affects lots and lots of people, but we don't have all the tools that we need to do this and. People have relationships with all kinds of external people outside themselves, either churches, their religious, their synagogues, their mosques, their job, their grocery store, their cleaners, the babysitters, all kinds of people they have relationships with. And they're they have different qualities to them. So for us, it's it, rather than trying to build new relationships with people we don't have relationships with, we think about how, how could you engage with someone with whom, whom people do trust, mm. um, who they already have a relationship, rather than trying to build another one. I think. Back to my, it, it's true in healthcare as well, but certainly in mental health, their case management or care coordination or case, you know, care management, lots of terms for it, is a hallmark of trying to help people na- navigate systems. And it's, you imagine the frustration of, of knowing people who have seven or eight or nine care managers in their lives. You know, for every social service they have, they have a care manager. And that each one is trying to do a great job. It's not that people aren't well intended, but it results in having you know, eight people to talk to when you need something and find out which, which, which one's going to help you with this. So we're trying to think of how to make this more human, if you will, and more impactful than not have eight care managers, or at least have the care managers know who each other are so they can coordinate their efforts together. And that's been a hallmark of this. I think the, our successes in building relationships is the there are a lot of nonprofits that are, we're a very large organization. We're a nonprofit. We're a very large organization. Many organizations that do good work are much, much smaller than we are, you know, ranging from like a million dollars a year to 20 or or 100. But that's still much smaller than we are in terms of the Medicaid business. The it, Being able to engage is mutually beneficial, actually. It teaches us things about people that we don't know, and it provides resources to smaller nonprofits who know different things than we do and have different, again, have different relationships. And... Rather than starting over again, we can really build on what I generally build on what what already exists. I love I love this subject. We could probably talk another hour and a half about social drivers, social determinants of health, all the the variable forces impacting someone's life. So I just love to hear you kind of say that you're casting out this huge web of support, a safety net. And, and what makes up that safety net to help not only identify people in need, but actually connect services. So I, I'm just thrilled that this is still so young, only 2020, but it's plenty of room to grow, which is really cool. So I uh, want to talk about data. So uh, from a healthcare data perspective, you know, that, that's where we are with FinThrive. Uh, data is definitely a telling direction, evidence-based direction of how we make decisions in healthcare, a lot of things. So in terms of data, are, are you seeing any promising results that's leading you into to future development with the Social Impact Center? Or is, is data a, a big driver for you in all things that you do for identifying people in need and, and, and building out other partnerships? Well, data is a big part of what we do all the time. So it's, we have a large analytics team set. We have teams of analytics people in lines of business as well as centrally. It helps us to make more informed decisions about what, what we need to do for people and how it can be helpful. The 
we've been very lucky in in Allegheny County, which is where, where Pittsburgh is in Pennsylvania, has a very robust um, data warehouse that the Human Service Department runs. And we've been able to develop a data sharing agreement, a HIPAA compliant data sharing agreement with the County Data Human Service Department that allows us to know much more about our members than we would normally know. We we know their health status. We know what kind of claims we pay. We know what kind of drugs people take, the legal ones anyway. We know what, you know, when we provide housing to people, we know what kind of housing they have. But we don't know things like who's in jail and who, and I don't mean we go fishing around looking for things. It's just we, we, we find common areas of interest. Who's using WIC services? Who's, who's truant from school? Who is on probation? Who's on parole? Things that help you make smarter health healthcare conversations with with consumers around what's important to them and how to make help them be more healthy. So we started this our first initiative, as you probably remember this, from probably 14, 13, 14 years ago, was a, a supported housing program for people who are homeless and had a lot of unplanned healthcare spending. The thing about really the care management people here said that there are people who's who they're really were unable to impact their healthcare spending. And the, the, one of the things those people had in common was they didn't have anywhere to live. They might be under a bridge, they might be in a shelter, they might be couch, couch surfing. They didn't have a permanent, decent place, to a normal place to live. If you approach the, the local folks who run the HUD programs and propose to do a joint venture of care funding care management with housing subsidies through what used to be called Shelter Plus Care as a HUD program, and it it was not only successful. My my favorite tagline about this program is going on for all this time. Actually, it's one of the few things I've ever done that did just what I thought I was going to do in the way I thought I was going to thought I was, thought I was going to do it. I think mostly things are, you know, you, you start out to do something as half of it's right and half of it's wrong, and the half is wrong you can fix, and you get half of that right, and eventually it comes out to be a workable place. And this this started off really to be. What has been all along has been very successful to people from this intended. That is, people in unstable housing who have a who are disabled, who have a a history of a long, fairly long history of unvaluable healthcare. Unvaluable meaning repeated ER visits, repeated hospital admissions, detoxes, crisis services, things that you, if things are going well, you wouldn't need them more than once, once or twice. You don't need them every month. The and this is this has saved consistently saved us over the years enough money per person that we can afford to pay for the care management and care supports for these people. Um, our savings in healthcare are offset by spending on drugs, but that's a good thing because people take they all have chronic conditions. All these people have at least one disabling condition. Most people have more than one. They're mostly 40s, 50s, 60s in, their, in terms of their age. Everybody has a substance use problem or a mental health problem or both. We didn't set out to find those things, but that's what we've found, the, as well as their, their medical conditions. And much like the 80% thing I started with, it's you could address their diabetes or their congestive heart failure, but if you don't take care of their nutrition and they don't have a place to live, it doesn't really, it doesn't really make much impact. You can't go to the doctor and take your medicine if you're living under a bridge. You, you can, but it's very difficult when you're wondering where your next meal is coming from or where you're going to put your head. So this has been... You know, continued success for, for a number of years. It's we've grown it. Um, we branched into other kinds of supported housing um, with by partnering. We don't Medicaid programs aren't allowed to spend money on housing and rental assistance. Um, there's some things we can pay for, but rental assistance isn't one of them. 
but we've made very successful partnerships with housing authorities who have, you know, Section 8 vouchers for sub-sized people um, who are willing to partner with us around high-need members. And it's Deborah's advantage. They find a, they find a, a house and a, a decent place to live and they get their health care stabilized. And it's been a really great story, I have to say. And with that, we conclude our very first episode of this podcast, The Healthcare Rethink. A special thank you goes out to president of UPMC for you, John Lovelace. Also, a special thank you goes out to UPMC Health Plan. And for all of our listeners out there, if you want to join our show or simply see insights and great excerpts from all of our conversations, please go to finthrive.com. My name is Brian Urban. I have been your host, and I'm excited to continue this journey with you all. Thank you.